beautiful, beautiful song today and that reminder of how he has, uh, he paid the price, amen, for us. And um, appreciate the testimony that you shared with us, Brother Riley. I, um, these are the kind of people that you want to get involved with, you want to get behind. It's called involvement, okay? Um, and the reason I say that is, is too often, too many times, uh, men and women have come to the country and they've just kind of hit the cruise control. I remember when you guys posted that you got your driver's license. And I think it was under a year that you got your license here. We're going to say under a year because once we're on recording, by law, it's a year. Even if you lose yours, you get it a second time. So anyway, um, but uh, that's called acclimation, okay? Uh, as Americans, and I'll go ahead and say this, as Americans, uh, Americans are very prideful. And many times not in a positive way. And I can say that because I'm American. I'm British as well. I'm a dual citizen. Huh? But anyway, I say this to say, to make this point. When someone moves from another country to America, we are always hearing and squawking, you've come to our country, learn our ways, acclimate to our land. Okay? But too often, many times, Americans will go to other nations and they want to continue living in England, Wales, or Scotland, or Spain, in little America. And it should not be that way. If we are coming to another nation, a foreign late nation, if I'm going to come into this land as a foreigner, I am to learn and adapt and acclimate to the land here. Okay? And I think there's no greater way than doing that than to get everything that is part. Show yourself that you're committed, you're dedicated. Amen? Uh, I'm reminded of that. That joke one of the times when the, the pig and the chicken are, are, are having a discussion, they're walking down the street, and they say, uh, you know, they were, they were talking about being disciplined and commitment and dedication and this and that. And the pig said, listen, you know, I know you lay the eggs all the time, Mr. Chicken. You are committed, but I'm the bacon. I'm, really, I'm dedicated. Amen? And there's a difference between the two, you know. So I believe we've got to go in. Uh, I say ankle deep. That means you go head first when you come into the land. Thank you guys for that. I greatly appreciate that. Go ahead and take your Bibles out this morning. We are going to be in the book of Esther. Now, when I say we're going to be in the book of Esther, I mean we're literally going to be in the book of Esther this morning. I had I wanted Brother Kelton to read the first two verses of it just to really and truly set the pace of where we're going to be because we are going to be all over the book today. Now, beloved, the book of Esther is, is unique in comparison to every other book in the Bible out of the 66 that are in the Word of God. And even though it may have the same similarities, such as uh, drama, intrigue, romance, power, war, battle, all of these, it has everything to make a soap opera or a, a best-selling novel. That's what most of the books in the Bible have, but especially when we look at the book of Esther. But there's one thing that is different within the book of Esther. One thing different is is that God's name doesn't appear one time. Throughout the entire book, God's name is not there at all. So allow me to ask this question to you this morning. And again, this is why I believe that the, uh, uh, the, 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 mess, the, the, the opening song today was so vitally important uh, and really important to me. Um, what do we do, guys? What do we do when, when life seemingly takes a negative downturn? We have ups and downs in our life. By the way, ups and downs, that's called life, okay? 
Um, it, it, that's life. If we don't have ups and downs, we don't recognize either one of those things. If you want to have the, the mountaintop experience in your life, you're going to have to go through the valley to get to the next mountain. That is called life, my friend. And we're not going to make excuses for it. And I don't believe we ought to crawl in a corner somewhere and say, I don't know why this happened to me. Because it happens to everyone. All right? Eight billion people in the world, everybody has ups and downs. And you know, here's the deal. When you're having ups and downs, you don't change your life. Life is to, in your life, you've got to continue doing what God wants you to do in life, despite being on the ups or despite being on the downs. So many people today, the, the, the first little thing comes into their life that messes their schedule up and they just chuck their arms up in the air. I like the quote by Corey Ten Boom. I actually posted this the other day, but she said something along this line that when you're on the train and, and the train goes through the tunnel and it gets dark all of a sudden, you don't take your ticket and throw it away and jump off the train. You trust the engineer that's carrying you forward that you're going to get through the darkness into the light once again. That's called life, my friend. So I'm going to ask you this question again. What do we do when life takes an amazingly negative downturn? When, yet it, when things are, are, are going on in our life that are not comfortable, they're negative, they're, uh, they're, they're seemingly painful, and yet God doesn't seem to be present. When life seems to be a continual storm filled with darkness and and depression, while in the midst of it all, God seemingly is not, isn't moving in the least bit. We've all been at that place, or we're all going to be there. So I want to bring a message to you this morning, or this thought of when silence is deafening. When silence is deafening. Far from a piece of fiction uh, written by mankind, the book of Esther is a true record of the events uh, where an entire race of people were nearly exterminated. And we don't know exactly who the writer of Esther is. I mean, some believe that it was Mordecai, the, the older cousin who was given charge over Esther. Others believe that it was Ezra, and some even write that it was Nehemiah. And nevertheless, it was given by God through the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we thus have this inspired book. So as Brother Kelton read in the first two verses, as we would read on, and we're not going to go there for time's sake this morning, but the book opens up with the current queen, Queen Vashti, refusing an order from the king who requested that she come and display herself, uh, display her beauty, if you will, before a drunken party of men. And guys, listen, congratulations to her. Amen. I understand about submission and I understand this and that, but she said, no way, no how am I going to be eye candy for these bunch of, bunch of drunken men. And as a result of that, she was banished and a new queen would be sought after. So to give you a bit of a timeline of where we are in the events of Israel and Judah, as you know, Israel would have went into captivity under Assyria. And Judah, Judah goes into captivity in 606 B.C. in the first siege led by Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar being the king. And the temple of Jerusalem is finally destroyed in the third and final siege by Babylon in 586 B.C. And the first exiles will return to Jerusalem, led by Zerubbabel, in 538 B.C., with the new temple being completed in 515. Now, Azarus, also known as Xerxes, uh, uh, becomes king of Persia in 486 B.C., and our book opens up in his third year, uh, his third year of his reign, roughly about 483 B.C., and this is where Queen Vashti would refuse to be used again as eye candy for a group of what I'm just going to call drunken perverts, Okay. A decree went out in search of a beautiful woman to fill this position of wife and queen, and the process was long and it was daunting, but eventually the queenship, if you will, the new wife would fall upon a young lady by the name of Esther, whose Jewish name is Adessa. 
So we get right into the story. We'll pick up in chapter 3 is where we'll be here in just a second. As Esther becomes queen in 479 B.C., we, we are introduced to a wicked man filled with ambition, a man by the name of Haman, the Agagite. Pick it up with me, if you will, in Esther in chapter 3. Look with me in verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, And after these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, son of Hamatha, the Agagite, and advanced him, and set his seat above all the princes that were with him, all the king's servants that were in the king's gate, bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, all right, remember this is that older cousin of Esther, but Mordecai uh, bowed not, nor did him reverence. So as we address the issue of when silence is deafening this morning, Here's the first thing that we find in the life of these people, especially the life of the Jewish race at the present moment, is we find a situation pop up. Now, guys, when I say a situation popped up, if we're going to look here in just a moment, we're talking about a situation, a big situation occurs. But we all have situations in our life. You may not be in the situation today where your entire family or your entire race is going to be exterminated off the face of the planet. Okay, I realize that's a bit drastic. But let's be honest with one another. When darkness falls in your life, it means something to you. It's personal. It hurts. There are problems. There are things. When a situation is sat before you, there are struggles that you're dealing with. Struggles of faith. Struggles of commitment. Struggles of dedication. Struggles of pain. Struggles of sleep. All these different things come into play. And you just want to hear from God. And there's sometimes in the midst of those situations that the silence becomes deafening. So the situation is found today when a man of ambition is promoted, a man who should have never been there from the beginning, but here's the, here is the situation. Haman, this vile man, is promoted, and all the servants were commanded to bow. Mordecai, being a man of God, refused to bow to any man. He wasn't going to bow to anyone but to God Almighty himself. And praise the Lord for Mordecai. Amen. Notice that Mordecai is the only one that is, that is singled out. He bowed not. Okay? And nor did him reverence. Guys, it wasn't personal against Haman. Understand that. Now, Haman's a vile individual. I'm not sure whether or not Mordecai knew the depth of his vileness or wickedness or evil, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter if he was the kindest, most gentlest man on the face of the, of the planet today. Mordecai wasn't bowed because he was a man of God. He trusted the word of God. I'm not going to bow to another man. So this sets off a tantrum in Haman's life. This egotistical, evil individual just gets filled. Mind you, thousands of people are bowing to him. Thousands of people are, are, giving, are giving him reverence, except one man. And I don't know about you, but I, for some reason, I always picture, maybe because of the movie, I don't know, but I always picture Mordecai as being this short little Jewish man, just a man like this big. Maybe he was five foot tall, and he stood up with everybody else bowing, he stood out in the midst of the crowd. Didn't matter his stature, didn't matter his size. He was one individual that would not bow, and that drove Haman insane. Pick up with me, if you will. We'll see in Esther in chapter 3 again. Esther in chapter 3. And notice what happens, what begins to happen here. We're going to move on. Esther in chapter 3. The Bible says that when Haman saw the Mordecai, bowed not, nor did in reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they, uh, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai, wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews 
that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Now stop for just a second. This is one man. Rather than Haman saying, let me just go kill him, I'll be done. His anger, his pride, his wickedness so much overcame him because Mordecai, he said, I'm going to destroy all of them now. Pick up in verse 8 with me, if you will. Esther chapter 3 there in verse 8, look what it says. And Haman said unto king Ahasuerus, uh, uh, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among uh, the people. He says, in all the provinces of all the kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people, neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge over the business to bring it into the king's treasury. The king took his ring uh, from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamatha, the Agagite, the Jews' enemy. So here's the situation at hand, my friend. Haman is now the Jews' enemy. He has the king's ring, which according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, a seal made with that ring could not be broken. The date was to be set for the extermination of all Jews throughout all of their dispersion. Notice there with me in uh, verse 13 in chapter 3. The Bible says that the letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to call us to perish all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women. And one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to take the spoil of them for prey. Now, beloved, this day in your mind, may be insignificant. But in Jewish history, this is the darkest day to the entire race. It's known as the ninth of all, otherwise known as Tishtiah. On this particular day in history, the same day was when the spies returned back from the promised land with an evil report crying, saying, we want to go back to Israel, we want to go back to Egypt, we don't want to go in there, we were as grasshoppers in their sight, uh, there's giants in the land, yes, it's a land that flows with milk and honey, but, but we're, we're, we just can't defeat them, the ten spies came back. Israel could have gone into the promised land after two years' time, but because of the evil report that was brought back by the ten spies out of the twelve, they would wander another 38 years. Both temples were destroyed on this ninth of all, this Tishbiah. The first was in 586 B.C., as we've already said, and then the second in 70 A.D. In 133 A.D., the Battle of Atar was lost. In 134 A.D., the Romans plowed the Temple Mount, all on this same particular day. In 1290, the Jews were expelled from England on this day, the 9th of Av. And then they were banished from Spain in 1492 on the very same day, Tishbiah. Historians conclude that, that both world wars began on this day, saying that World War II and the Holocaust uh, was actually a long, drawn-out conclusion of the First World War, which began in 1914. And amazingly enough, Germany declared war on Russia, effectively catapulting the, the First World War into motion on the 9th of all, Tisha B'Av. The very date set to exterminate the Jew Jewish race under Haman, this situation at hand, coincides with all these travesties for the Jewish people in years to come. So here's the caveat today. There's a situation at hand, a huge situation, I'm going to say. And seemingly the next thing that we find, the next thing that we see is silence. Just silence. Within the entire book of Esther, 10 chapters, 167 verses, 5,633 words, the name of God, is not found one time. 
And this is important for us to grasp because it looks like lights out for Israel. And I understand, we know the rest of the story. You know, so it's hard for us to really get excited right now. I don't know about you, but I don't know most people. I know some people, they like to go and read the last chapter of a book and then come back and start it again. I can't stand doing that. If I read the last chapter, I don't read any of the book after that. So I like to, I like to go through a book with intensity and with the intrigue and all this and that. We know the end of the story of Esther. But if we're looking at it from the point of where we are today in the midst of a silence and situation, it's important for us to understand because it looks like they're... They're goners. Letters have been sent out to every language in all provinces of the current world and of this particular day. They were all to die. Beloved, I'm going to say it was a dark time for them. Look over in chapter 4 with me. In chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud voice, uh, cry, uh, sorry, cry with a, yeah, with a loud and bitter cry, and came even before the king's gate. For none might enter to the king's gate clothed with sackcloth, and in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Dark days, my friend. Mordecai remembers his cousin now. Is in the, she's in the kingdom. Uh, he sends a message to Esther and says, Hey, listen, man, do you understand what's getting ready to happen? Will you please go speak to the king on our behalf? Please go make a petition before him. Listen, you are in a position to make a change. You are in a position to make a difference. Please go speak to the king. And yet her first answer is found in verse 11 of chapter 4. All the king's servants and the people of the king, this is what she says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's province do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king and to the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to, be put, to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that they may live. But I have not been called to come unto the king for 30 days. So essentially, Esther's response to the destruction of everyone in her bloodline I haven't seen the man in a month, man. He hasn't called me in a month. I haven't talked to him. He hasn't called. I, I, I can't go before him because I'll be killed. Mind you, her whole race is about to be exterminated. Silence. The silence has now become deafening. The question has to be in all the provinces where the mourning and the sackcloth and the ashes and all of these things that are transpiring has to be, where's God? You know, I'm asked that question more and more as we see the world go darker and darker and darker. I'll, I'll, I'll speak to people on the streets. I'll speak to them through the week. I have counseling sessions with many different people, and we have these conversations, and they're sharing with me their broken hearts, their issues, their problems, and all this. And then they come back, and they say, well, where is God when X, Y, Z occurred? He's in the same place he always has been. He's on his throne. But for Israel, for Judah... Dark times. How could things get this dark, they're thinking? Would he answer the plea of his people? Would he listen to their mourning? Would he see them in sackcloth and ashes and, and do something, intervene? Will he do something at all? So there's silence in the midst of a situation. Then all of a sudden, all of a sudden we see God's sovereignty. We see God's sovereignty. I understand so many people are afraid of that word. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm not afraid of God's sovereignty. I'm not afraid of using that word. 
It doesn't make me any more Calvinistic after I use the word than before. Amen? Because if my God's not sovereign, my God's not a savior. Amen? He is sovereign. Sure, his name is not written in the book. Sure, out of 5,366 words, God's name is not found one time. Yet, his fingerprints, it's all over the book. The whole book, now I want to show you something here. Now, in your mind, you think this book, you think this whole situation hangs on one verse that we're going to read here in just a little while. Not too long, in case you're watching the clock, but just here in a little while. But I'm going to challenge you to change that thought this morning because I'm about to give you a, another occurrence that this whole book hinges on and reveals the sovereignty of God. Look over in chapter 6 with me. I told you we're all over the book today. Esther chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2. Now watch this. On that night could not the king sleep. All right? And he commanded to bring the book of, of records of the chronicles, and, and they were read before the king, and it was found written that Mordecai had told Bichthana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, keepers of the door, who sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. Now guys, what would follow after this? Now listen. How many people have ever had a sleepless night? I've had many of them. Most of my nights are usually sleepless. One night without sleep. Somehow, some way, his mind, I want to read the Chronicles. Maybe he wanted them read to him so he would fall asleep. Maybe that was his sleep out. What, who, who knows? But for some reason, he goes, pull out those book of Chronicles, okay? And they find out that this man, Mordecai, made them aware of an assassination attempt on the king. And while as we think that God is absent in our life in the midst of the situation and silence is felt and found, God's sovereignty is all the while present, working behind the scenes. Keep reading with me in the chapter, in uh, verses uh, six through th- I mean, sorry, three through ten. And the king said, "What honor and dignity uh, hath been done for Mordecai uh, uh, for done to Mordecai for this?" Then said the king's servant and. The, that ministered unto him, there was nothing done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman was coming to the outward court, watch this, uh, to the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said unto him, behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, what shall be done unto the man whom the king delighted to honor? Now watch this. Haman thought in his heart, to whom would the king delight to do honor more than myself? Haman answered, uh, answered the king, For the man whom the king delighted to honor, let the royal apparel be brought, uh, which the king useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head. And let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of, of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man withal whom the king delighteth to honor, and to bring on horseback throughout the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Now watch verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste, take the apparel and the horse, and thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew. Amen. And sitteth in the king's gate, let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Now here's the guy that, this is the guy that wouldn't bow or give reverence to him. Haman hates Mordecai. 
Haman built a gallows for Mordecai and his family to destroy. And Haman's the one that set in motion for all of his bloodline throughout the entire province of the kingdom to be destroyed. And all of a sudden, God's sovereignty shows up. And he says, go get all that stuff you just said. And he thought he was talking about himself. And I want you to go get Mordecai down there. Stick him on that horse, lead him around town and praise him. One sleepless night, one man robbed of sleep by the God Almighty, working behind the scenes for the king to look at the record of the books. And at that very moment, wicked Haman was trying to seek to kill Mordecai upon the gallows, filled with pride and ambition. I do this and that, and all of that, God just set him up. Beloved, the sovereignty of God would be seen in a scene. Just before this sleepless night, the words of Mordecai set Esther's heart on fire. In chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, as we have so often many a times referred to, it says, Then Esther bade them return Mordecai out of his answer, go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and, uh, and neither drink or eat or, nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go unto the king, which is not according to the law. And she says, And if I perish, I perish. So be it. In chapter 5, we find Esther comes before the king, uninvited, ready to die if needed. She was uh, requested a banquet for the king and Haman. Her petition was granted. The scepter was extended. Her life was spared. Chapter 6 shows up. The king has a sleepless night. Chapter 7 rocks around, and guess what happens? Now we find that the, the banquet is at hand. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and I'll try to go quickly, so the king and Haman came to the banquet with Esther the queen. The king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. <clears throat> and what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight. Now if you've got your Bibles tonight, underscore verse 3. O king, if it please the king, let my life be given uh, me at my petition and my people at my request for we are sold i and my people to be destroyed to be slain to be to perish but if it would, if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen i had held my tongue although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage then the king ahasuerus uh, answered and said unto esther the queen who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so and esther said the adversary an enemy is the wicked haman then Haman was afraid before the king and queen, and the king arising from the banquet of wine, and his wrath went into the palace garden. And Haman stood up to make requests for uh, his life to Esther the queen, uh, for he saw that there was evil determined against him uh, by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. Then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now, I want you to understand what they did to him. They put a bag on his head. We see that in the movies all the time, that people are getting abducted. They slapped a bag on his head. And Harboni, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then said the king, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. I know it's a lot of reading, a lot of Bible this morning, 
But on the very gallows, the enemy of the Jews built to hang Mordecai became the very instrument of his own demise. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 10.8, He that diggeth a pit shall fall into it. Now, guys, I'm going to throw this out at you, and we'll be done this morning. But when silence becomes deafening in your life, if you're ever wondering if God is working behind the scenes, if, if, if it seems like nothing is moving and nothing is happening and God's doing nothing, I want you to look at the last verse, the, the last of our verses, and see what, what, oh, uh, what Esther has said. She said, if I have found favor, I told you to underline that verse, if I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. So I throw this out to you this morning. It seems like God just decided to show up in chapter 7. 10, 12 years has transpired. And in our hearts and our minds, we look at the situation, we can feel the silence, and we're like, what in the world is going on? And, and what is happening here? And, and, and we, we, we suppose in our mind that God just decides to show up at the, at the last moment for a great book to be written. The sovereignty of God doesn't work like that. When do you think his sovereignty was found in the book of Esther? When do you suppose favor was found for Esther? Well, it takes us all the way back to the beginning. The verses will be on the screen. You're welcome to turn in your Bible. But the Bible says in Esther 2, verses 15 through 17, it says, Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to, the, to go in uh, unto the king. She required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all of them that looked upon her. So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into the house royal in the tenth month, which was the tenth month of the Beth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all of the virgins so that he set a royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Ashton. See, beloved, all throughout the midst of the situation, all throughout the midst of the silence, throughout the entire book, all 10 chapters, all of the work, in 5,366 words, 107 chapters, all of the things that we have in this book, even though God's name doesn't appear, it's prevalent that from the very beginning, grace and favor was found. It's prevalent that God's omniscience was set in motion in the very person that was needed to preserve Esther's people, the very one who would have a sleepless night. So guys, when silence had become deafening in Esther's life, in Mordecai's life, in the Jews' life, and when silence becomes deafening in your life, what we need to understand tonight, today because the Lord is already working behind the scenes. He's already working to make things right, beloved. He's already working to see that grace and favor be found in your life if we'll just trust him in the midst of the situation and even during the silence. Esther was willing to do the right thing. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai chose right over compromise, compliance, and conformity. Everybody else bowed? He says, I'm not bound. And today, guys, if we want to make it through the silence, if we want to get through the situation, in the day that we live in of agendas and anti-God and biblical, anti-Bible movements in our world today, they're nothing more than a distraction. 
for what God is already doing in the midst of the situation, in the midst of the silence, his sovereignty will be found. They're only a distraction from the truth which sets mankind free. Whereas the Lord said himself, if the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free in thee. So beloved, let me encourage you this morning that in the midst of the silence in your life and the situations that may occur, trust that God's sovereignty is moving behind the scenes. It may come with a sleepless night, but nonetheless, God's hand is still working in our lives. Will you bow your heads this morning? Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for who and what you are. Thank you for all that you've done. I simply ask you today to take your message and write it upon our hearts and bless us and move today in a way that will bring honor, glory, and praise to your name. And I pray, Father, no matter what may be transpiring today in people's lives, no matter what situation may be prevalent, Lord, I ask that you would help us trust in the sovereignty of God. Help us trust in the faithfulness, the mercy, and the grace of our Lord, that even though it's silent, we know that his presence is working. In Jesus Christ we name. We ask these things. Amen. And um.